As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be taking some time away from our study through Matthew and consider some Advent passages, uh, or at least passages that would certainly be appropriate for this season. Isaiah 40 is where I'm turning now. If you want to turn with me in the copy of the Word of God that you have before you, please follow along as I read the chapter in its entirety. Isaiah 40 marks a particular new spot or section in Isaiah, which then goes throughout the entire rest of um, its book. It is a time in which uh, God's people needed to hear encouragement. They were about to have desperate times upon them, and it was something that was because of their own doing. So as we now hear the Word of God, let's uh, turn to God's promises knowing His fulfillment and His faithfulness to everything that He has said will come to pass. Hear the Word of God. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with His arms, and carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very small thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmiths cast silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution 
chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. And He will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Our Father in heaven, what a blessed passage of Scripture this is. We ask that the Spirit of God would be poured out upon us now and fill this place with His presence, that You would give us understanding with our hearts to understand the Word and to hear the Word spoken to us. We pray that as You speak with us today, we would receive it. And as the power of Your Word goes out creatively, we pray that You would make us to be that new creation. That we could see the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth before us. And so order our lives today in the light of its soon coming. We pray that You would bless us in this season as we prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever that timing is, only You know. Meanwhile, we are going to put our hand to the plow, not looking back, being diligent in the work that our Lord has given to us. And we pray that You would grant it to be so today by applying the Scripture to our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. As mentioned earlier, today marks the beginning of an Advent season that leads up to Christmas. And this morning I thought I would consider this Advent season more specifically than other than just in the liturgy and, and preach upon the prophetic hope of which week one of Advent would hold out for us. Perhaps each Lord's Day through this season I may give a message as we look to the second coming of Christ, which is what this season is about. Looking back to the faithfulness of God in the first coming through Jesus Christ, and looking forward to 
the promised coming back again of Jesus Christ to renew all things. Advent is a season of fasting and it's a season of preparation. It's quite different than the way that the world presents Christmas today. By way of preparation, what I do not mean is going out shopping for all your Christmas presents or preparing all of the decorations around your home. Uh, What I mean in preparing for the coming of Christ is preparing your heart and waiting upon Him in an active faith that is diligent about about the work He has given you to do. So during this season, we not only look back to His first coming, and we think through those things, through the prophetic word that God has given our fathers in the Old Covenant, knowing that the story, we have clarity in that in the coming of Christ, but we also anticipate from the prophetic word that He is coming back again in glory as He brings heaven and earth together in the glorious eternal state when we have our resurrection to be with Him here. So as we look forward to and anticipate His coming again, there is a preparation that we are to be about. We are to be about the good works that God has put before us. And that is in kernel the essence of the message this morning. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Anytime we consider the future, it has an effect upon us. Future events are those things that we can either anticipate or we can dread. I went to the dentist two weeks ago after my wife had to reschedule an appointment twice. I don't like the dentist. I don't like going to the dentist. I dread going to the dentist. But I finally had to come to terms with it, and it seems like as we had to reschedule the appointment last time to accommodate something I'm sure that was probably much more important. Before I know it, the time was upon me again, and I had to go to the dentist. It seems like when you're dreading something, it comes upon you pretty quickly. But when you look for something in the future that you anticipate with great excitement and a longing for, it seems like the days can drag on and on. Think about some of you young couples thinking about the day that you're going to get married and you think about preparing for that great festive day and all that's going to go into it. And time just seems to drag on and on and on. And then it finally comes. And what a wonderful day it is. But the future and how we view it influences us today in how we live. It influences our attitude, and it influences what we do and our behavior. You can't escape that when you think about your future. So as we think about the future of Christ coming back, it should influence and affect a way of thinking in our attitude as well as our behavior of what we're going to be about today in the present tense. And that's what Advent is about. This first week of Advent, the emphasis is upon hope. Hope. The hope that we have given to us in the prophets. It's a prophetic hope. A hope that the prophets foretold something 
that promised something that God had said will be. And then it comes together and is realized in Messiah. This is the prophetic hope. And through this week, we read through the prophets. And as we read through the prophets, we read it with a mind that Messiah will fulfill the very Word of God that He has given to us. And so with that, there's hope. When Christ comes, there's hope. When we look forward to His coming again, that's what we hope for. And with that, there's great encouragement. There's comfort. There's strength. As we see God's faithfulness in fulfilling exactly what He had promised through the prophets of old, we should have even greater certainty regarding the second advent that He will accomplish it exactly like He has promised. God is faithful to His covenant. The first week of Advent focuses upon prophetic hope. It's about prophecy and the word of prophecy. There's a lot can be said about prophecy here, but let me give us just a few thoughts that we can then frame the message of the week as we consider hope through the prophets. There's lots of activity in Bible exposition today regarding prophecy. In fact, there's many preachers that have made prophecy kind of a soapbox of theirs with timelines and charts, and they're all about the prophetic details. But prophecy about the future is never given to us to satisfy man's curiosity. That's not its intent. A proper use of prophecy always brings the future to bear upon the present so that it engenders our faith and we walk according to what God has promised today by faith. The purpose of prophecy is to increase our hope, and particularly in desperate times. It should work in us a greater sense of excitement of what God has promised so that we live accordingly today, according to what He has promised. That's by walking by faith. We, we look to what God has promised. We know that it will come about, and so we order our lives today in faith, believing those things, living today, knowing that we're heading there tomorrow. That's walking by faith. That's why if you don't believe that, then so much of what we are about as Christians seems very foolish. We walk by faith. And if we're so controlled by the Word of God and what God has promised, and so we order our lives according to what the future is going to happen and come about, with great expectancy and excitement that this is going to come to pass, which God has promised, and we believe it, it changes our attitude. It changes our perspective. We should not be pessimistic in life, no matter what the tribulations may come. Because God has promised victory. God has promised glory. God has promised renewal. God has promised new heavens and new earth. 
which has already come to pass and begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't believe any of this stuff, that activity is just going to seem like a waste of time, and you won't give yourself to it. Examples of some of those waiting in anticipation, as we see in the earlier parts of the narrative of the Gospels, you have Anna the prophet, you have Simeon, who is waiting for the consolation of Israel with anticipation and excitement, knowing it's coming to pass, and so they anticipate this, and they get to see it. Wise men from the east who were most likely trained in the way of the visions and prophecy of Daniel the prophet, who was there hundreds of years, centuries before its fulfillment, knew how to study and look for the things that Daniel had prophesied there in Babylon, and then they come when they see the star finally appearing. Because they were waiting and watching and preparing and expecting with joy. So they had gifts, and they knew the time, and they came. And so like we are, we are to be anticipating. We are to be diligent. We are to be watching and waiting actively for the Lord's second coming. Being about what He desires for us to do. Our present passage marks the beginning of a great poem of hope that begins in Isaiah 40 and goes all the way through Isaiah 55. And we begin our journey in this Advent season. We're going to be called to prepare our hearts for Christ's return. By looking forward to what God has assured to us, we order our lives in the present. That's what this is about. Living holy and godly unto Christ Jesus. Doing the good works that He has already put for us to do. So let's consider this word of comfort from God to His people in days of old. Because we may be about to enter a difficult season as the church in America. And we also need words of comfort, not words of despair. Isaiah 40-55 through is an extraordinary poem. It's about the comfort in the way of God, in the way that God brings comfort to His people. The word of comfort was to a very particular situation. Because at the end of chapter 39 of Isaiah, the prophecy was given to Israel that they're going to go away into Babylon, into exile. And that's kind of discouraging. Babylon was going to come, and they were going to raid Jerusalem, they were going to make war with Israel, and then they were going to take away the Jews into exile, into Babylon. Destroying the temple, destroying the city even. This is difficult news to bear. God's people, Israel, had forsaken God, see? They followed after the idols of the world. They followed after the wealth of the world. And what wealth can buy. They valued those things more than they did their God. 
Hezekiah was the king at the time. Hezekiah was very wealthy, and Babylon had heard about the great wealth of Hezekiah. Hezekiah turned sick, and the king of Babylon took interest, and he sent letters to Hezekiah, sent presents to Hezekiah, and then finally sent ambassadors to Hezekiah to come visit. And Hezekiah receives these ambassadors from Babylon, and he shows them all of the wealth of his house, and all of the wealth of the temple, all of the wealth that God had given them and blessed them with. And so God says to Israel, so you've shown Babylon all your treasures? I've got news for you. That's what you have valued. You have valued these things more than you have valued me. So the day will come when it, all of it, will go off to Babylon. In two or three generations, that's exactly what happened. Babylonians came in, they took all of the wealth in the temple, all the wealth in the king's palace, and they took it to Babylon. Isaiah 40-55 through 55 is a word to this community that is about to face this exile. To a community at this point had lost hope. Who had forgotten how to hope. They think that God has forgotten them and that the world is just mundane and going through things apart from God's direct intervention and interaction. They've forgotten those things. If you were to ask them, probably like you do many Christians today, I'm sure that they could give you the right answers. They've been catechized with it. But their hearts were not fully on board in embracing it. So as with Daniel 9, what Isaiah does is he begins to acknowledge why they're going to go into exile. And that's an important reason and an understanding why this is going to happen. The exile has happened because God is faithful to His covenant. God is faithful in what He is always said is He's going to do. Not because God has forgotten His covenant, not because God has forsaken His people, but exactly the opposite. This is exactly what God had promised in Deuteronomy 27-29, through 29, if His people forsake Him. That if His people forget Him and worship other gods, they will go to exile. That was shared with them hundreds of years before. And God is now faithful to His Word. But because that too was taken care of in the covenant, God has not forsaken His covenant. See, remember, the covenant is about tremendous blessings for fidelity for those who live in faithfulness with God in the covenant. But the covenant is also inclusive of the curses for those who are not faithful to the covenant. This is exactly what God says was going to happen. Now as some people would say, God's wheels turn very slowly, but they turn very surely. 
The covenant is seen as His Word. This is what He said. The powerful Word which God speaks, and what God speaks does come to pass always. Psalm 33, 6, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. All God has to do is just speak. And it happens. It will happen. The prophet looks back to Genesis and he, and he sees how God brought everything to pass in the very Word and the beginning. Here was God and God spoke and creation was. It became. And so as the prophet looks back to Genesis and sees a word of creation, he is looking at this particular portion in Isaiah 40-55, through and even through the end of the book, as a new creation. He's going to speak again. And God's story is always like this. I meant to ask my wife on the way to church this morning, what those little dolls are called, that you open up a doll... And there's another one, and you open up an all, and, and I see some of you lipping to me that right now what those things are called. I don't know what they're called, but you know what I'm talking about, right? One nested inside of another, inside of another, inside of another. That's how Isaiah is. And, and oftentimes that's the way most of Scripture is. You have the one big story. You've got the one thing. But contained within the narrative of the big story, you have a story. And then another story and another story. But all are a part of the same thing. Isaiah is like this story that is within a story. And and what he sees and what he's beginning to reveal is part of the narrative which is a part of the grand narrative. The big story of God begins in Genesis 1 and 2. This is paradise. This is the garden. This is God walking with His people. And God being able to be sensed by His presence. By His people among the creation that He has made. God has created man in His image. And He delights in His man that He has put over all of the dominion, over everything else upon the earth. Paradise. But then paradise falls. That's Genesis 3 through almost the rest of the book. Of the Bible. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, paradise is restored. But we see paradise restored at the beginning of that all the way back to Christ who comes. And his, He was being born of a virgin, and He grows up, and He takes our sins upon Him upon the cross, and He dies, and He is resurrected the third day, and new creation begins then. And those who are in Christ are made a new creation. The old things have passed away, behold, all things are new, and you become a new creature, part of the new heavens and the new earth, awaiting still the glorious consummation when you are resurrected. But Christ, the first fruits of that already, has established this new creation. And so we have this story that's going on even within Isaiah. And the people have fallen again. And we have the theme of creation, and we have this theme of fallenness. But we also have the word of prophecy declaring a new heavens and a new earth through a new covenant. 
And that's going to happen through the redemption of God through Jesus Christ, His Son. Emmanuel, God with us. So the word of comfort through Isaiah comes like this. Yes, all this that's about to happen in the Babylonian exile is coming to pass just as I have spoken. I'm faithful in my covenant. But it's happening as a direct result of your sin and your idolatry. But now God has dealt with your sin and He's dealing with the sin and also the exile too. He's going to deal with it all. So oftentimes exile and sin go together. So now because of the sin of the people and the exile pending, the covenant is renewed and creation itself is renewed. Now, look at how this works there at the beginning of this poem. The beginning of the poem is Isaiah 40. The end of the poem is Isaiah 55. And you're going to see some themes on the bookends that hold it together. First of all, we see the hope of the prophecy is that God is coming to deal with the problem that His people face. We see that in verses 1-11. through God Himself is coming to deal with the problem. The real problem is not merely the oppression of the enemies. It's not the Babylonians who threaten. But it's the constant turning away of His people to idolatry. The repetitive theme throughout the Old Covenant that God has to deal with. It is that reason that God brings oppressors. He brings the enemies of Israel because they turn away from Him. If people would just keep themselves from idolatry, they wouldn't have to face those oppressors in their weakness. But they don't. So God brings them. So it's not just merely dealing with the oppressors. He has to deal with the issue itself, and that's their heart. That's their wickedness and their idolatry that keeps turning away from Him. And He's going to deal with that too. Once and for all and finally. They need to be delivered from their sins. And in verse 2, that's what it says He's going to do. He's going to take care of forgiving them of all of her iniquity. The iniquity is pardoned. Their warfare will be ended. In verse 3 and 4 is a preparation for that very thing. And this is actually what is prophesying, of course, who? Verse 3 and 4, we hear very clearly that being echoed in the New Testament referring to John the Baptist. But there is a preparation. A preparation for coming. And John is going to prepare the way of the Lord shortly, right in the midst of the Lord's ministry about to come. And he's preparing the way for Yahweh Himself to take care of the sin problem. The idolatry problem. The oppression problem. All of the enemy problem. And that's why his baptism was one of repentance. Turn from your sin and follow the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, 
That's what the season's about. The season is about preparing your heart. Prepare the way. Repent of your sins. Deal with your sin. Put away your idols. Straighten out the pathway in your own heart. Prepare for the Lord's coming again. Be diligent in the labors that He has gifted you to do. And don't be slack in the good works that He has foreordained and already prepared and that He's calling you to. Prepare the way for His second coming. That's the message to us this Advent season. Now notice in verse 5, there's something here about the glory of God. The glory of God will come upon them. It shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it. Now this is the glory of that which led them in the wilderness. The glory cloud and the fire that comes down upon the tabernacle. And so the glory of God fills the place so that the priests could not even come in and minister. This is the glory that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. The glory of the Father. God Himself is coming, verse 10 through 11 says. Behold, your God, He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He is coming. It is God Himself who's coming. It's not just a new king. Oh, it will be that. Not just a different kind of priest. Oh, it will be that. Not just the prophet that Moses prophesied. It is God Himself in all of these things is coming to you. Behold, your God is going to manifest Himself right in your very midst upon this earth. And He's coming back. And He's coming back in power and glory. But He's also coming back in the tenderness of a shepherd. Both of those images are here given to us in this poem. He's coming with power, but He's coming with tenderness. Now, how can you manifest both of those things? There's a picture in Revelation 5 that I think manifests it for ourselves. And, and once, on the one hand, we behold Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the fierceness of a lion. And as his enemies behold the fierceness of a lion, he's coming in this power, he turns. And what we see of him is a lamb as if it were slain. He's both of these. Revelation 5, 5 and 6, we see Jesus presented as, as both the lamb slain and the lion of the tribe of Judah. Isaiah then takes this sequence of Isaiah 40. He's going to take it all the way to Isaiah 55. He's going to has that power that he's going to deal with in Babylon and with all of the powers that have overcome His people and suppressed them and oppressed them and bound them in bondage, what we have is the picture of another exodus. We have the first exodus that has happened to reveal to us in one kernel form of the power of the dominion of the slavery in Egypt. 
And then God's delivery through His firstborn, the Passover lamb that would release them by the redemption that God has redeemed His people and led them into the promised land. But here we have the people going through another exodus. They're going to go back into Babylon. And they're going to need to be released again. But when they do come out of Babylon, they're going to find that they're still under foreign oppression. And they're waiting for the real exodus. The real exodus is going to be through the Passover Lamb. It is going to happen through Jesus. God be with them. Is Emmanuel with us. And here is God Himself going to deliver them once and for all. The ultimate exodus. The ultimate release from all of the exile. And all of the sin will be dealt with. And idolatry will be put away. And God will be with His people. And He will be their God. They have forgotten this. Oftentimes, like we forget this. In Isaiah 40-55, through this beautiful poem, you'll see two different strands through this poem. You're going to have a strand of Passover. This liberation that brings God's people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land through Passover. We're going to see that in the poem of the suffering servant finding a climactic point in Isaiah 53. We'll see also the Day of Atonement which was an annual but solemn fast where the Israel remembers their sins and they confess them and God forgives them in token. We see these two coming together, Passover and Day of Atonement. And the people now are going to exile because of their sins. They need forgiveness. They need atonement. They need a new exodus. They need a new kind of Passover. And God is going to give it to them. Comfort, he says. Be encouraged. This is going to happen. At the very end of the sequence, we see a picture of new creation. The new creation that God creates through this great work that He has promised is going to do at last what the first creation was intended for. In Genesis 3, when we see the fallenness of man and then all of creation falls because of man with it, it produces thorns and thistles and, and, and challenges and, and problems and struggles. Very similar to how Isaiah paints the imagery in Isaiah 5 of the vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord that then goes wild and produces all the wrong stuff. The time is going to come in this new portion. In Isaiah 55, when this poem is coming to its close, he says, instead of the thorn will come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar will come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. There's so many blessings that Christ Him self-brings. That in Isaiah 65, we even see that the lamb and the lion come together. And we've seen that picture already. But there'll be peace. 
When we hold this whole poem together from Isaiah 40 to 55, what we're seeing is a return from the exile that they have not even yet gone to. And it's a promise that they can look forward to. And they can order their lives today in light of the return. So that when they are called to return, they will return. Many of them made their lives very comfortable down in Babylon after the exile, and they did not come back. Well, how is this going to all be accomplished? How is this going to, to happen? It's going to be the same way He breathes creation in the very beginning. By the Word that He speaks, it will be done. See, that's all God has to do, is He speaks. He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it came to pass. That's why He says in verse 7 of Isaiah 40, all flesh is grass, and the loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but... The Word of the Lord lasts forever. So he's summing up the entirety from the promise of the covenant of Abraham all the way forward. And he, and he spoke to Abraham and Abraham believed. He gave promises and Abraham ordered his life according to those promises. He says, I call them. And they say, yes. But then they start wandering from me. The grass withers, the flower fades. Just like all of them. But God's Word will last and stand forever. You can count on the Word of God. You can count on His faithfulness. You can count on Him fulfilling His covenant promises. So this is picked up again in Isaiah 55 when he, he says, so that the word that goes forth from my mouth, it will not return unto me void. How is he going to do this? He's going to speak and it will happen. In other words, God is operating once again as creator. He commands and it comes to pass. That picture that God is creator which then launches the greater part of the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 to the end. This is the picture that is so much greater than the idols. The problem has been that Israel has been serving pagan gods. And when you serve the gods and the idols of this world, there are lords behind those idols. Dark forces. Invisible. Demonic. Spiritual. Behind the idols of the world. And those lords will lord it over those who give themselves to them. They wanted idols. And so having the idols which their hands can see and touch, they gave themselves over to the dark forces behind them. You know what God says? Okay, you want idols? Is that what, that what you want? Okay, idols you will have. Uh, you heard my warning before from the pulpit many times. Be careful that you don't want something too much. God may just give it to you. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. So Israel then languishes in a country that worships idols. There, even the Babylonians are going to come and say, Hey, play those songs of Zion. 
Psalm 137 says, well, how can we play the songs of Zion when we're, our hearts are not there? See? But it's idols you said that you wanted. It's all the wealth of the world you said that you wanted. It's all those things you said that you wanted. It's all those things you valued more than God that you said you wanted. Well, here it goes. See, some of those lessons in life are sometimes meant to help us to understand those things will not satisfy. It turns our hearts back to God. And part of the message of the whole book of Isaiah, if there's going to be a new creation, if there's going to be a new covenant, then the dark lords who have ruled over God's people, it is for Israel to have those defeated, and God, the Lord Himself, will come and do just that. See, our world around us that we live in is full of idols. Full of idolatrous practices that have ordered lives and culture around the idolatry of the world. And we're called to be out of the, separate from it. But is that what you want? Really, is that what you want? The wealth. The toys, the things that the world values and worships. Wealth can be a blessing, but it can also be a curse. We must have the spirit of readiness to always give everything back and walk away from it all because we value God. It is God that we serve. See, our problem is one of the heart. If God brings judgment, He also brings comfort for the people He chastens. And that's the, the message. And the way that God brings comfort for His people is He speaks. And it'll happen. It's by the power of His Word. And that's what we're looking forward to in the first Advent. It is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have this prophetic hope then that engenders wisdom. A wisdom which begins in the fear of God. And if you've been under my ministry for very long, you know how I define that. I'm parroting Dr. Barrett. The fear of God is living in the constant awareness of His presence. That is the beginning of wisdom. In the last part of this chapter, chapter 12, or Chapter 40, verse 12 through 31 is the majestic picture of God the Creator. And that's what we have in the wisdom literature of the Scriptures. The majestic look of God. This is Job chapter 38 through 42, part of the wisdom literature where God then shows Job Himself. And in Isaiah 40, it's he who measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. One who has enclosed the dust in a measure and he weighs the mountains on a scale. And, 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 who, and who can be God's counselor? The kind of language here speaks back to the way that God was speaking to Job to give him wisdom. God sees the nations just like a drop in a bucket. He looks down upon all this and the prophet is saying 
to a people who are about to go into exile, you imagined God, your God, was just like one of those local tribal gods and somehow the Babylonian gods came in and defeated Him. Oh, He's not like that at all. Don't ever put God on the level of anything that happens in this world. Don't ever take God down to the level of any strength, of any might, of any nation. They're but a drop in a bucket. Well, they were able to overcome God's people and capture them. How could you possibly rescue the people from strength of Babylon? See, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. The reason they went to exile was because they were worshiping foreign gods. This was what God had told him from the beginning. That's why he said, never trust in chariots, in horses, in the power of the military might. Never trust in great dominions and nations. In a single word, I can defeat them all. They're but a drop in a bucket. And you've forgotten that. You've taken me down to their level. And he's got to remind them that they've been foolish. They were not living in the fear of God. They had forgotten who He was. See, they weren't living in the constant awareness of the presence of God the Lord, the Creator, the Sustainer. And so they acted foolishly because they did not remember. So the answer, that's what happens when you and I do that. It's not because God is weak and He can't. It's because this is exactly what God says He's going to do to be faithful to His covenant. But see, your God remains the sovereign one. He's going to say, look at those idolaters in verses 18 and 19. They choose a lump of wood they carve it out. They put it over in gold. And then they make silver chains for it. And just look at that. Now, can they deliver you? That's what they trust in. Actually, when you compare God with those things, it's, it's laughable. That's what God says. I just look down at that and laugh. He who sits above the circle of the earth looks down on all that's nonsense. He just blows it away. So how are you going to compare me? Of what is my equal? Now you have to remember this, people, because you are His people. And He is your God. And He has revealed who He is to you. He is the Creator. Who's His equal? Who can counsel Him? Obviously, the answer is already implied in the way that it's asked. And so the prophet says to Israel, who is facing exile, the same thing he says to Abraham, look up and see. Lift up your heads and look up at what God has done. Look at all the stars, Abraham. Your descendants will be like that and all the descendants of the earth will be blessed from you. Who created all this? That, that's our reminder today. Who brings out all those stars 
And he brings all the hosts to them, and he calls every single one of them by name. And you know how many billions of stars your eyes cannot even see that he already has a specific name for? That's our God. He's great in strength and power. Not one star is missing. So he reminds them in verse 26 to 28, he reminds them who he is. Hence, why do you say to me that my way is hidden from the Lord? He doesn't see, he doesn't take notice. So I can do this little sin and he, he, he won't really take notice. No, God is faithful to his covenant. Men, don't try to hide your secret sins in your closet. God is faithful to His covenant. He will chasten His people. Because He loves you. He does not want you to go that way of the world. Hence you say, my way is hidden from the Lord. Have you not heard? See, they choose to forget. That's what idolatry does. When we give ourselves over to idolatry, it blinds our mind and we truly forget who the God of eternity is. We forget. But Yahweh is the everlasting God. He it neither faints, He's not weary, He doesn't sleep. He always notices. And those that wait upon Him, Give themselves to Him. Trust in His Word. Wait for His delivery. They will not be disappointed. They will neither grow weary, nor will they faint. Even those who wait on the Lord, they will rise up and be strengthened in His power. That's how this poem gets started. And then it moves into the invocation of the ancient story where God arouses someone in the east and then Abraham and Sarah, we look back to what God has done in their life and what He's promised. And we remember what God has promised for them and what He did to Abraham and Sarah, He is going to bring about as well for His people Israel. Because it's all a part of the same covenant, a part of the same family, a part of the same promises by the same God. The same covenant mercy I showed to Abraham is the same covenant mercy I showed to David. It's the same covenant mercy that will be with you now, and I will bring you back from exile. Comfort. Comfort, he says to his people. I will overthrow all the powers that enslave you. And that will be the same, the same God that will come in person. Behold your God. That's what this glorious poem is all about. And we have the great privilege on this side of the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ to see all of this that has come to pass through His Word, His creational Word. And that's how John starts the Gospel, is it not? In the beginning, just like Genesis 1.1. When paradise was in the beginning and God created it, it was all very good. In the beginning... John's Gospel says, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This Advent season, this week, as you consider the hope and the prophecy of what God has promised in His covenant, let me commend to you Isaiah 40 through 55, or even to the end of the book. Oh, you're going to see, you're going to see the fallenness, but you're going to see God interceding. You're going to see the suffering servant. You're going to see the new heavens and the new earth. You're going to see the new creation. You're going to see all of this in a microcosm from Isaiah 40 through 66. This new creation is God establishes His new covenant through Jesus Christ, His Son. And that's because great is the mystery of godliness that God manifested Himself in the flesh. And Jesus is God in flesh. The glory of the tabernacle has come down upon us. And we beheld His glory. And this light shines in darkness to dispel the dark lords. And to defeat them. So no longer do we have the dominion of sin. We have liberty to be instruments of righteousness for our God. We have been freed through the ultimate exodus. We have the perfect Passover lamb that was slain for us. The lion of the tribe of Judah is who he is. And this Advent season, prepare yourself. Rekindle your love for Jesus. Live in the constant awareness of His presence and know the power of His Word. Don't trust in idols or your bank accounts or your wealth or your worldly values. Trust in the God who makes it all, who owns it all, and nothing that can happen to you will undo your comfort if your trust is in the right place. Rid yourself of sin. Don't entertain sin. Don't play with sin. Don't dabble with sin. Don't invite sin. Flee youthful lusts. As the author of Hebrews would then say, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. This is the season of repentance. This is the season of fasting. The season of Christmas will be upon us, but now is the time of preparation for that glorious Advent. So ask God to be working in your hearts. As you reflect back upon this past year, what is it that you would desire of God to do this coming year? Where are you falling short of His glory on a constant basis because of a weakness in your character, a sinful weakness? Where has sin entrapped you and ensnared you so that you are not running with the the fidelity in the race? Those are the things you need to ask God 
to save you from, to cleanse you from, to release you from, and empower you so that you can be ready and not ashamed when He returns. Deal with sin in your life. Renew your covenant commitment to Jesus. And seek Him. And know His promised comfort. He will come. And He will deal with you gently as a shepherd with, as, with lambs. And He will feed you from His own table. And that's what He's going to do today. If you're here and you've got sin in your life, repent before you come to the table. Be cleansed and turn it all over to God. You don't ever want to go there again. And He'll answer the prayer of sincerity. If you're discouraged, this is the place of comfort. God transcends all of our earthly trials. Come to the table of the Lord today with clean hands and a pure heart, looking unto Jesus and putting all of your faith and trust in Him. If, you, if you're worried about what tomorrow will bring, if you're worried about America collapsing, it's but a drop in a bucket to Jesus. If you're worried what your bank account's going to do tomorrow, Jesus doesn't need your bank account. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things I'll add to you. I can even do this, he says, when you're in exile. Just look to Jesus and give your life to Him completely. Not clinging to anything, but come with empty hands and give your entirety of your life to Him today, through this season, to follow Him. Make this season something that makes a big difference in your life, in your commitment to follow Jesus with everything you have and ask Him to then help you to actually grant you the very thing that you request of Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we sense how far short we fall of Your glory. We sense our waywardness. We sense the, the entertainment of idols in our lives. And even the culture in which those idols are bred. We ask that you would remove these things from our heart and our minds. That we would be completely and entirely and wholly Jesus's. And, and that all of our interest and all of our values would be on godly things and the heavenly things where our heart is. Where we feel our waywardness and we feel the, the temptations and the ease and the complacency, we ask that you would deliver us, save us, comfort us, deal with those things that we are too strong for us and that we cannot deal with, and pray that you would develop our character to be godly in Christ Jesus, and not to trust, not only in horses and chariots, but not to trust in wealth, what wealth can buy, or the security of values that the world places. But Lord, may you be our, our value. May you be our trust. May you be our great army. May you be our deliverer, our savior. May you be our rock of defense and our, our, our shield and the sword, the very word that brings everything to pass. Lord, may we give ourselves to you 
this day, this season, may our lives be different as we look for the coming of Christ. May we so order our lives today knowing that what you promise will come to pass. May the future be vibrant upon our minds so that we live today in the present by faith accordingly. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.